Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Raw Knuckles podcast. We'd really appreciate it if you'd like, subscribe, and share with a friend. I got together at a barbecue with my buddies on Long Island, and we had the TV out on the pickup truck, and it was like, I'm going to be on TV, watch! And then none, nobody believed me, and we had hot dogs and beer, and I was on TV, and I thought, that was as cool as it gets, and I just made 386 bucks. When I stepped on the ice, I never backed down, and I never stayed down. And I was vicious, and I was malicious, and I don't care. I'm alive. He's a freaking madman. Look at him going to town. That'll be a suspension. That'll be a fine. Alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. I got a question right off the top, and the question right off the top is, did you come to my house for a Super Bowl party? I did. I yeah. did. There you go. This would be like and 80, I, 89 or 90, something like that. Yeah. And he was it like, was. He was like, it was a really fun time. And I'm like, well, then DB was probably there. He likes to have fun. And yeah. I thought back because um, all the Irish guys, right? Iggy, Hughes, uh, Davey, Curran, all the guys from Ireland. And they worked the bars in New York, Timmy. And it was hilarious. They all come up. I told you. They come up in cabs all, and they took cabs, and they get out with the amount of booze that they get out of the cab with. They opened the trunk, and it was, like, ridiculous. But it was an awesome day, and I, I just – and I, we, we met a few times there in New York, and then certainly again uh, one time in, in um, L.A. Yeah, those were great days for me. But, you know, I just started working in movies in – 1986 and uh you know kid from long island rangers were always my favorite team and the first thing when they let me into hollywood the first thing i asked was can i get ranger tickets and uh so yeah you know and then i'm hanging out at the games with you know gresh and james patrick and brian leach was a rookie and you know it was just it was just the greatest time but it just it kind of shows my stupidity in a way like instead of saying hey how do i get to be in the matrix i was like how do i get to be in a ranger game <laughs> How did and then Nux? I was me and Nux were talking too, and it was it you know surprisingly he didn't you guys didn't meet through Shelly like because him and Nux and Shelly are close. How when did that come about? You guys known each other. That's how we met you and I. Um, how long have you known Shelly, and when did you meet? When did that all happen? I met Shelly actually right around the same time, a little before that. Um, I was I the only guy I really knew in Hollywood that I was that I hung out with was Judd Nelson, and so Judd and I were supposed to meet at the China Club in New York, and. I think it's 1987 or something. And so I'm supposed to meet Judd and Chelly's supposed to meet Judd. He was going to introduce us because he had worked in Montreal or something. And Judd didn't show up, shocker. And uh, so it was me and Chelly and we just hung out and had a few beers and just, you know, um, just, you know, kind of exchanged numbers or whatever. And then uh, a couple years later, 1990, I guess, he was, the year he was traded to Chicago, I was filming a movie in Chicago. And, uh, you know, we pretty much spent the whole summer together. China Club, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, uh, oh. Oh. funny. And, and listen, growing up in Boston, I was a huge Bruins fan. Obviously, you, New York Ranger fan, um, played sports growing up. And, and once I saw the Bruins, Bobby, oh, I was like, I wanted to play hockey. I wanted to be a Bruin. I wanted to play in the NHL. Now you played baseball. You played hockey. Played all those sports. And you growing up, what what? drew you to the career you're in right now acting 
Well, you know, I, ne- I actually never played hockey growing up. They taught me to skate when I did the cutting edge. So uh, I didn't st- I didn't start skating until I was almost 30, um, which is obvious for anybody that ever skates with me. You know, that's, that's, that kind of <laughs> explains itself. But uh, so I was a baseball player. You know, I played soccer in season and played basketball. I was a pretty good basketball player. But baseball was my game. And funny enough, being from the east end of Long Island, way out east, uh, I was a Red Sox fan because we'd get the TV stations from Hartford and New York City. And so most of my friends were either Yankees or Mets. But Carl Yastrzemski was from like 20 minutes from where my town was. And I love Carl Yastrzemski. He was my favorite player. So I was always a Red Sox fan. So my dream as a kid was just to play left field for the Red Sox. I never thought about anything else. That's all I ever wanted to do. I went off to college, played a little bit at Tulane University, got hurt. And then I was like, oh, geez, what, what am I going to do now? And uh, I kind of... I didn't really think I'd go be an actor for my life, but I just thought my dad was a guidance counselor in high school, and he was like, hey, if you don't finish college, you'll never finish it, so stay in college. But I was kind of bounced out of Tulane because of the way it went with the you know, the reason why I hurt my knee, which is another long story, but a motorcycle, and you're not supposed to be on motorcycles um, if you were on the, a freshman. But anyway, uh, um, so I went to NYU uh, where my sister was, uh, and uh, I said, I'll just be an actor because I thought that would be the easiest thing to do and still stay in college. So that was totally my career plan was to do that for a couple of years. I thought it'll be easy. There won't be much homework and there'll be pretty girls. And that's that's my business plan right now. <laughs> and then how'd that go? I mean, was that that plan? Was that like from the start how it was or was this like a lot harder? And I mean, how many times you probably failed a lot to begin with, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I had done I had done one play in high school. Like uh, it was very much like that that show, uh, High School Musical, where the teacher gets all the jocks to come do one play and and just to make it cool for the other kids. And so I did that, and I had a great experience. But it was something you do in high school as your senior year. It was nothing, you know, nothing that I thought about. Here's here's my path or anything. So I get to NYU, and there's nobody like me there. Everybody there has like been doing play, you know, like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. They they were doing plays since they were five years old, and you know, Jeremy Piven came from a theater in Chicago where he started doing plays, and John Cusack. All these guys that I sub that I met later on, I never met Affleck and Damon, but a lot of guys I met, they they were doing the, the way we were all doing sports. They were all doing acting from the time they were little kids. So I got to NYU. I was at a huge deficit of experience and savvy. And uh, so I'd go to these auditions like for Shakespeare and they look at me like cross-eyed. They'd be like, what the fuck? What are you? What are you? Who are you? You know, go that go. New York accent. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate, yeah. man. Every time I walked in a locker room, everyone would be like, who's this guy, a player or a masseuse? <laughs> yeah. So don't worry. I, I, I get it. But keep going. Well, Sorry. So I spent a whole year going to these auditions and, you know, NYU is one of the prestigious acting school. So it was a very high level to try and crack in. And after a whole year, I never even got a part. I never even got a part of like, I wasn't even trying to get Hamlet. Like I was trying to get the spear carrier in Hamlet and I couldn't even get that. And so I just, you know, I was kind of getting ready to quit. And then I was wandering around NYU at that time had all these buildings that weren't being utilized yet. So I found this one floor above where the the uh, the undergraduate drama department was. There was a floor above it, and they weren't using it. So I went into the teacher, the the dean, and I said, "Hey, can I put on a play in this little room with with somebody other? Uh, I didn't, you know, we were the broken toys, you know, the guys that couldn't get parts." And I said, "We want to do a play," and she was like, "Sure, okay, you can use it, and uh, you know, just don't burn it down." So we we did a play, and we like we had about four or five of us, and nobody wanted to direct it or do the lights. We all wanted to have a part. But to get it going, we had somebody had to set up the chairs. So we all worked together, and 
So we started doing these plays and figuring out how to do it. We'd set up like 40 chairs for the audience. And most performances we did, we'd have like three people, like somebody's girlfriend and, you know, a janitor, you know, and, and we just kept doing it and just trial and error and got better and better. By the end of the second year of doing that, one night we're doing this play, uh, American Buffalo, which is a great play. It's actually going to be on Broadway again this uh, in, a, in about two weeks. It's opening up a revival of it. And we're doing this play, and there's like four people in the audience, and there's one dude there that none of us know. And we're like, who's that dude? And, uh, oh, I forgot one thing. So every time we did these plays, uh, they had this thing in New York called the Ross Reports, which was like a, you could get it at a newsstand. It was like a, a guide of all the casting directors, all the, all the agents, everybody in New York City. Like there was like 90 of them at that time. Now there's probably 290. But so every time we did a play, I would print out, I'd go to, I'd go to Kinko's, and I'd print out the program and an invitation and my photo, and I slipped it under like 90 doors for every play, like all over Manhattan. I'd walk over everywhere and slip it under and say, please come to see this play. And so it turns out at the end of the second year, this person in the audience that nobody knew who it was, was, uh, was an agent. And he saw the play and, and he signed me. So I was a junior in college and I had an agent. So now all of a sudden I had kind of leapfrogged all these idiots that are doing Shakespeare. And like I was kind of, you know, in, in, the, in the lead a little bit. And all that hustling mentality you know, I had met a stage manager of a Broadway show, the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. And so the summer after my junior year, he said, hey, somebody's leaving the show. They're going to have auditions. They're only auditioning 10 guys and you only have one line, but then you have to understudy, you know, stand by for this other guy on this three page scene. And so that's you're going to audition with that three page scene. So I studied and studied and studied and I went in and got that job. And so now, like on uh, August 1st, before my senior year of college, I'm on Broadway. So it was pretty fast. But there was a lot of work that went into it in that two years. And then, and then kind of stuff started leading from that opportunity. Well, certainly the hustle and the hard work got you there. And um, that one of the first plays you did, was it with Laura Linney, uh, DB? Yeah, yeah. Good for you, man. That's, that's, now, uh, <laughs> that wasn't actually one of the first. That was, that was actually after I was going. Okay. so Thank you, God you, for Google. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've been, uh, you've been going at that point. But. Was that kind of the first big one? And when you were doing those plays in, in college, were those all plays that had been written that you guys were just doing, or were, were they plays you guys made up? No, none of us in that little group of guys. None of one of the guys that we were doing plays with was Jordan Lage, who actually is is uh, he's going to be an understudy in this new American Buffalo that's starting on Broadway in about two weeks. That's why I know that he's like become a working actor. He's a great guy, Jordan Lage, L A G E guy i really respect because he's never really had the big win but he stayed with it for almost 40 years now um but anyway he was none of us were writers in that little clutch we had at nyu and just after nyu um but by the time i did that play with laura linney that was the seagull the checkoff play it was in 1990 and uh that was her big break so i'd already done uh memphis bell and uh, gardens of stone and eight men out and lonesome dove so i was kind of already getting to be a little bit of a name and then her dad was a playwright, Romulus Linney, and so she had grown up around theater, but that was her big break. And she got discovered, and we were doing this in this little shithole on Avenue C <laughs> and 6th Street, like a 100-seat theater. And it's the only time in my life I've ever been naked on stage. And Because uh, and, I was playing Treplev, you know, the crazy Russian kid whose mom's famous actress, and Carol Lindley was in it, the, the, the woman from the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. She, was, she was hammered every performance just hammered like she used to date Lawrence Olivier back in the day and she'd had all these claims to fame like that she was she was the flavor of the month in 1960 I guess and she didn't like the way it went since then so she'd be hammered every single show 
So, and she would never look at me. And I'm like, you know, I'm like a really intense actor. I'm like, let's get this as good as we can get it. Let's go. She would never even look at me. She would say her lines the same way. So one night I just dropped trow. I just took off all my clothes and stood there <laughs> just to see if she would look at me and, and say something or just act differently at all. She didn't change a bit. I was like, you know, which was perfect for the play because the guy, he kills himself because his mom won't pay attention to him. So in a way, even though she did it because she was hammered, it was the perfect thing. That's hilarious. Yeah, you couldn't do that today, probably. No, no everybody, had their, everybody had their phones out like, oh, here we go, you know. Then at what point, so you, as you go along here, it was the cutting edge kind of like that your big breaking moment or as far as movies or when? how did that all kind of start? Well, I did, the first movie I did was in 1986 and it was Gardens of Stone. Francis Coppola directed it. It was with James Caan and, okay. um, and James Earl Jones. That movie was kind of a critical success, but not a commercial success. But because Francis Coppola hired me, all of a sudden I was getting these scripts sent to me, you know, like I was driving a taxi like six months earlier and now I'm getting offers to be in movies because Francis Coppola picked me. So that was a big break. But then the cutting edge definitely took it to another level because that was the first kind of really popular commercial hit I had that that I was the the main guy and like in Lonesome Dove I was a supporting role even though that was a huge hit on TV um so yeah Cutting Edge was really a, a big moment for me and that's when you got into like I mean you were a Rangers fan before that and then you got into hockey hockey I mean I had to lie for you yesterday we were supposed to do the interview yesterday <laughs> DB had a hockey game I said you had a big charity event, but you had a hot. No, I'm just kidding. How'd that go? <laughs> no, it went good. I, I just I skated with the Blackhawks alumni. Love to play. Uh, I get it. I get since, it. Uh, well, I'm yeah. playing in this charity game on Saturday, and I haven't skated because of COVID. So I skated the other day, like with uh, you know guys, old guys like me who are not that fast. And then I did one more old guys not that fast skate. And then I tried to go out there with the Blackhawks <laughs> alumni because I'm playing in front of 3,000 people on Saturday. You know, and I'm not going to be good, but I'm just trying not to suck. So. So I had that was my last chance to skate yesterday. But anyway, um, we got I got the cutting edge. Uh, you know, as 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 you mentioned, Chris uh, Gresh and I were good buddies. And now his last year, I think, was nine eighty nine, and he had just retired. And so they hired me to do this part. And they said, "You have three months. Do, learn to skate as best you can." So I said, "Okay, Gresh, you're my coach. I'm going to hire you." And wow. he goes, I'll, "I'll be your drinking coach." <laughs> and uh, you know, so anyway, we were already good buddies. And so he he put he pointed me in some directions, but I. I basically, I went to the rink. They had, uh, I don't know if you remember, Chris, they had Sky Rink on uh, yeah. Ninth Avenue. So so MGM Studios rented out Sky Rink for two hours a day and all these coaches and me and Moira Kelly, the girl in the movie, we'd go to this rink uh, every day at 7 a.m. for three months. And, you know, I mean, if you do any of that, you hit a bucket of balls every day for three months, you're going to get a little better. And, and so I, she and I started really competing because we were both starting from zero. And uh, it was really what made the movie really strong is that she and I had this background of like training together and spending time together and, you know, and going through the same struggles and, and experiences. So that was a really rare opportunity. And, and I have such great memories from that. So was that was that like the first time you skated for that movie, that first time you ever got on the ice? You know, I had gotten on the ice like like when I was maybe 10 years old or 12 years old, like with somebody else's skates that didn't fit or, you know, like. But yeah, that was the first time I ever really said, all right, I'm going to try and do this. First time I had a pair of skates that fit, you know. Um, so I'd say I'd been on the ice like three, four times before that my whole life, but never with any kind of serious intent. Yeah. And you yeah. just, <clears throat> the game's carried throughout your entire life. I mean, Cade, your son played, right? He's still playing or is he yeah. done playing? He's, He's done. Playing. He's at Alabama. He kind of made a choice that that was enough for him. And, um, you know, he, he, 
he, he was really skilled. Like, you know, sometimes I wonder if he had had a little bit more fire in his belly. But, you know, he, he's doing great now. He's getting straight A's at, at Alabama. And, he, you know, he, they gave him a scholarship. And he was like, well, Dad, do I, should I go play junior hockey or should I take the scholarship? And I said, it's up to you. And he said, well, I'm not going to the NHL, so I think I'm going to take the scholarship. And I thought, that's pretty wise for a, you know, 18-year-old kid. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, DB, yeah, it, you know, I'm looking at all the work you've done. And l- listen, I'm, I'm, I love mountain men, all right? We, <laughs> hadn't talk, we haven't talked in years, right? And I, the first time I'm watching, I hear the voice, and I'm going, fuck, I know that voice. Who is that? Who is that? And then I see the credits, and it was you. And it's one of my, honestly, one of my favorite shows. But re- when, when you look back at, I guess, my interest, and when you look back at all the movies you did, and I love Memphis Bell, uh, and looking at all the movies, when you look at those characters to play someone else, like out of all the characters, who was most like you that you played? Oh, wow. That's a great question. The chef, today's, today's character. <laughs> don't, yeah. tell, don't, don't tell me it was uh, in Resurrection of Gavin Stone, <laughs> Pastor Alan Richardson. <laughs> no, definitely not that one. Um, that's a great question. You know, I mean, acting is such a weird business because anytime you talk about it, I mean, the business you can talk about, but the actual acting process, as soon as you start talking about it, you almost instantly sound like a jagoff. And it, it's, <laughs> so it's it's kind of hard to, to talk about it in a way. But but I think there's a little piece of you in every part and you, you got to go to that part. And, and so one thing that just jumps into my mind, we were talking about Lonesome Dove a minute ago. So I played this character in Lonesome Dove. And in, in one way, that character was very much like me because he was very confident at his job. He's a very good cowboy. He's like the top dog among the posse of the little cowboys. But he's terribly insecure and, and shy around this one woman. And, you know, Diane Lane, who's, you know, so beautiful and so compelling in that show. Um, and so, you know, that, so in that show, I looked at the part of myself that was like, all right, who, what women have made you feel that way in your life? And, and then, and then the other side of it being around the Cowboys, it's almost like you compensate because you, you're afraid they might've seen who you are around that woman. So you got to kind of overdo your, your dude in front of the Cowboys. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. that was kind of my way in on that show. So that was a part of myself. Um, as far as, uh, I mean, Memphis Bell, I don't think that character is anything like me because I, I feel like stupidly or otherwise I'd be running right at those bullets, you know, and, and he was, you know. <laughs> Uh, so that wasn't really me. But, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, I think a lot of the characters I've played, Chris, I'm attracted to them because they're not like me. Um, so uh, I'm going to have to think about that a little bit more. What about Eight pop- Men Out? I mean, that was your – and you grew up playing baseball. Was that kind of fun? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was fun. The physical side of that was really fun playing baseball. But, you know, he's a really not an intelligent guy. And, you know, I've read some books. And, so, and, and I'm also more – even though I come from a small town – I have a more of a, you know, uh, uh, whatever, energy, uh, intellectual energy than Shoeless Joe Jackson had. So um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, uh, it's going to come to me. I, you know, there was one part I did this TV show, Life As We Know It, where I play like a dad of, it was weird. I was, I was just newly a dad at that time. It was about 20 years ago. And uh, there's a character I play in that show. The show wasn't all that good, but that part was very similar to me. I felt like it was, you know, I, I understood it. His name was Michael Whitman, and I understood that that guy as being closer to me than a lot of the characters I played. 
That's a great question, though, because I'm like thinking to myself, like, I have a hard time just like acting like I like my neighbors. Right? Yeah. Like, hey, how you doing? And I'm like, yeah. I couldn't imagine having to act and being like looking at a character and be like, this is totally not who I am. Well, the guys, right? a lot of the guys that are really big movie stars, like from Tom Cruise to Keanu Reeves to Stallone, even Kevin Costner. They kind of play the same thing all the time or yep. a variation of the same thing. And and that's that's the way you, you brand yourself and that's the way you do things. And I saw from the very beginning that, you know, I was going to get a chance to, to, to make a shot at the, you know, at the top rank of the business. But I didn't want to do the same thing over and over again. So right after I got going, right around this time when I did that play with Laura Linney, that year I was like the flavor of the month, 1990. And so I go do a play in a shithole theater on Avenue C with Laura Linney, who wasn't Laura Linney yet. And... And then I went off and did four movies that were like tiny little movies almost to prove I could do different parts. I did this movie, Sons, which is like playing an idiot from New Jersey. Then I went to Denmark and played a freedom fighter in, uh, in World War II, a Danish guy. Uh, then I went to Chicago and did the movie, a basketball movie with a bunch of brothers, uh, including Hakeem Olajuwon. And, and, you know, that was the thing I mentioned where I, I got to know Chelly better. Uh, and then there was one other movie I did that year. So, in other words, I was sort of saying to my agents, like, you're going to try to turn me into one thing? Fuck you. Watch this. I'm going to do four different things. <laughs> and, you know, that's like the brashness of youth. But it, I guess it was probably stupid. But I, I, I had great experiences. Was there any actors like that you were, tr were trying to follow or looked up to as uh, you were going through like early in your career? Yeah. I mean, on Lonesome Dove, which is like my third or fourth movie, fourth movie, I think, I got to spend, you know, pretty much six months with Robert Duvall. And he's the greatest American actor alive. And, and it, that, was, that was his greatest role, as he says. And just to be with him every day and watch what he went through and watch his process, uh, that was really the greatest thing. Well, that was like a, probably like a real surreal moment, right? Like it's kind of like I was, you know, I felt like that in my career where like a couple like Chelly, for example, like I was just like, man, I used to watch this guy and hate him. Like yeah. now he's, I'm in the same locker room. Like, who else was like? Besides, that's that's kind of like what you're saying. And like, who else was there? Any other actors that you had that experience with? Well, Ed Harris was a big one. Like, I really admired him because I love the movie The Right Stuff and and uh, Sweet Dreams and a couple other ones I had seen as an acting student and just coming up. And then I got hired to be in a Broadway play with him uh, in the '80s called Precious Sons, and we rehearsed for a week and a half, and I got fired. And but the, it was the the director fired me because he said, you know, Ed was only. Ed is only like nine years older than me, and he's playing my dad. And I was pretty fit, and Ed's, I was like four inches taller than Ed, and I'm supposed to be his 15-year-old son. And they were sort of like, uh, you know, it's not anything you're doing. We just got to get somebody else. And then they got a guy very different, like a guy who looked like he was, you know, scrawny 15-year-old guy. So I was okay with it. But I was really bummed because Ed was, you know, I hadn't worked with Duval yet, so he was my favorite actor and but since then we've worked together and he was in my movie Two Tickets to Paradise and, and you know he's a friend so you know those two guys Robert Duvall and and Ed Harris those are like my two uh those are that's half of my uh, Mount Rushmore of actors that's awesome you know um <clears throat> the accent I brought it up and I, I I find it amazing English actors when they come over here and they play their <laughs> roles and they talk like they well they talk broken english not proper english they speak our english and then they switch back to their own i find that amazing now you being from new york me being from boston i know like when i came here to montreal people they couldn't understand a fucking word i said park the car and harvard yard so to change that accent new york accent i'm sure you had to work on it and i know i got a little tip from you and i tried it and it didn't fucking work 
Now, I did Pock the Car and Harvard Yard. And then I went with the pen. Park awesome. the car and have yeah, it didn't fucking work. I could put a fucking log in my mouth and I can never say my eyes. How, did that really, really yeah. help you? It really works, but it's like, it, it's not like a one-off. I spent an hour a day and I did it with Shakespeare because that was the hardest thing for me to do. Because I, I used to sound like, you know, Kevin Connolly from Entourage. He's yeah. got that real strong Long Island accent. And, you know, I had a lot of energy as a young actor, but I had no polish. And I went into this one audition and this casting director was trying to do me a favor. And he said, he said, you're not going to get the job. And I said, why not? He goes, because you, you, you don't look like you're from New York. And I was like, well, what does that, who, what does that mean? I'm from New York. How can I look like? And I didn't understand what he meant until I saw the Sopranos. And what he was saying was, you're not going to be on the Sopranos. So you, you're going to be the guy from Iowa. You're going to be the guy from Canada. You're going to be the guy from wherever. So I knew, I knew he was right, even though I didn't really understand it. So I started right. doing that an hour every day in my mirror. And I would take like, you know, I'd take the pencil and I'd be like, to be, to be or not to be. And then, and you do it for an hour. And then you realize you start to get really aware of, you know, how you're lazy with your, with your mouth position and all this other stuff. And so I, I got rid of the accent, which was really a, you know, a great blessing because, you know, obviously if you're just going to play a guy from New York, you know, it's pretty limiting. You know what's yeah. fucking funny is when I went on Spit and Chicklets, I got after I might have went a little overboard with some Russian stuff, and my agent called me, Russian agent, and he was just like, "Tim, you not popular in, in Russia, right?" Like basically saying, "Like what are you doing?" And then I got a call, and I don't think we ever talked about this, and I'm not saying it was you. I just don't, you know, I only have one friend that's an actor, <laughs> successful one, but I got a call, Nux, for, and it was just like this amazing, perfect, like Russian. English accent and it was like a death threat <laughs> and, and I and I thought it was real and I'm pretty sure DB was you yeah I, I don't know if you're gonna admit yeah, it but I'm pretty I, I thought you, sure I thought you knew you. that a long time ago no I I, I, I think I did but I, when you were just talking now I'm like wait a minute I gotta bring this up and I wasn't planning on it but that's pretty funny it was really oh, good okay I'm glad we cleared it up I didn't want you hiding under the bed <laughs> no, or no no it wasn't like I was moving my family it wasn't that serious but it was it was really good I was like man who's called me that someone's really pissed from Russia. And then I was like, wait a minute. And then I figured, they, they think you did tell me. That's pretty funny. It's funny. Yeah, I got to get a Russian. I mean, obviously, for the, for years and years in Hollywood, you know, the, the bad guy has to be a white guy. So the go-to bad guy has been Nazis. But now I think we're going to go back to Russians. I mean, so I got to <laughs> sure. build up my you got You got a long career ahead of your stuff. Yeah. yeah, they're not going to be hiring the Russians. That's for sure. So they're going <laughs> to need an actor for sure. Um so listen, obviously Hollywood, from the outside looking in, it's a tough business. You know, age is a huge factor, right? Looks is a huge factor. You get into the voice part of things, and and, and certainly you couldn't have done that without changing your accent. But how'd that come about? Going from film, you know, uh, to to being a voice actor. Well, my first. Before I did that uh, that uh, movie with Francis Coppola, the first time I was ever on camera uh, in any setting was uh, a TV commercial for the Army, and I did I did this one day on a on a job, and it was a really good commercial. Bruno Kirby, the actor, his dad, uh, Bruce Kirby, dearly departed guy, was a great actor, Broadway actor. He played my dad, and I did this commercial where I tell my dad I'm joining the Army, and he tries to talk me out of it. It was kind of a revolutionary commercial for 1984. They took this commercial and they slammed it on in the last moment, right before the kickoff of the Super Bowl, which is like the number one moment of TV of the year. 
and the commercial took off. It was huge. The next week, I got I got an audition from Steven Spielberg. All these people that watched commercials, I had no idea. I just thought I got together at a barbecue with my buddies on Long Island, and we had the TV out on the pickup truck, and it was like, I'm going to be on TV, watch. And then none of, nobody believed me, and we had hot dogs and beer, and I was on TV, and I thought that was as cool as it gets, and I just made 386 bucks. So, you know, it was like that was it. I thought that was the end of it. But then all these people called, and it became a thing. Commercial ran for like two years, and I made a you know a hundred grand or something crazy in those days. And is that uh, normal? Is that normal for like? Because that's a great question too. Of like, like you come in, act like you want to be an actor, right? And then next, you know, you're doing voiceovers. You, you two dumb mix. You're writing, right? You wrote. Like, like all of a sudden, is that normal? Like, as throughout your career, you start finding more talents and then like in that. You know what I mean? Like, you had no idea you'd be because you've done voiceovers for a while now, right? Yeah, well, that, that one just fell in my lap because the Army then called me up like six months later and they said, hey, you want to come in? And, and we had they had a commercial with a guy in a tank or something, and his line was muffled. And they said, if you replace his line, and I had to go in the studio and learn the technique for replacing another guy's line. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And then I, that, I got about 30 grand for that over, you know, they kept playing that commercial. And I was like, well, I got to get into this voiceover thing because... You know, you don't have to comb your hair. You, you know, you just show yeah. up and you don't you know, have to go to the gym. You yeah, don't have yeah, to do anything. Just easy, talk. Easy. So and we're as good. Far at as, yeah. As far as the writing and voiceovers and everything, you know, I touch wood every day. You know, I'm, I'm like uh, so my my Broadway debut was 19 August 1983. And here it is almost 40 years later. And I've never really had to do anything else for a living. And so, I mean, I know that I have very good fortune, but it's also because, you know, I've adapted. I've done voiceovers. I've done I've written my own projects. I've continue to do theater you know you just gotta i mean you just gotta keep yourself in it somehow and 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 so so far i've been managed to do that to varying degrees of success well it's like going back no and i can as a friend i know you don't take it for granted as much as um just like what you said with the start off going under all the doors and pushing you know the play out it's like you're still doing that today and i think that's awesome you know just continuously working i think it's great yeah i mean i would have thought it'd be easier by now but (laughs) yeah yeah, no (laughs) Still working your butt off. Um, I, I, I guess looking when you look at Hollywood and you think Hollywood, right? And you you see that underbelly of Hollywood, and we've seen what happened with the uh, Me Too movement and all that. And when you look at that, has that ever like affected you in a way out there? Um, I, I guess. Well, like you know, looking it, at it and saying, you know, this is fucking sleazy. This part I don't like. Yeah, I didn't like any of it. I mean, yeah, it's very sleazy. And, uh, you know, it's driven a lot of it's driven by like just power dynamics. But there's definitely predatory stuff that goes on. And, you know, I was a young pretty boy and I definitely had a lot of older dudes make moves at me and do stuff. And, you know, but I was like I wasn't I didn't feel threatened because I was physically capable and I never felt trapped or anything like that. I kind of just laugh it off. And, you know, when I came, when I started doing plays, a lot of times, you know, it would be like me and four gay guys and five chicks. And it was pretty obvious to me that if I was nice to the gay guys, they would tell the chicks how great I was and make my job easier. So, <laughs> so I never had any issue with anybody. I didn't like people putting me in a position where it was sort of like transactional, you know, and thinking that like maybe I'd be up for that kind of thing. So, but I kind of just laughed it off. I mean, I was making money and it didn't really bother me. Now, I'm not trying to belittle women who got trapped by guys like, Harvey Weinstein or, you know, other people like that, you know, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very scary, evil thing. And a lot of that is, is, you know, really messed up. So I'm not trying to diminish that, but the few times where it happened to me with, with dudes, you know, it was not, I don't know. It didn't, I didn't feel, it didn't make me feel diminished or anything like that. I just kind of laughed it off. 
Yeah, there's a lot of fucked up shit in all walks of life, you know, in yeah. areas with people, power, and stuff. So, I mean, no, I get what you're saying, for sure. The Malibu mob. I want to get to that. Like, <laughs> you know, that's all we hear about, the mob. And how'd that come about? Like, Chelly gets out there, and, like, he he's such... I think people are so obviously drawn to this kid. One, he's in awesome shape. He's a good-looking guy, but he's got a great personality. And uh, how, like, what was his role in putting that whole Malibu, Malibu mob together? You know, he, he loved it. I mean, I, initially that after that year in 1990 when uh, we I made that movie with him, when he was in got traded to Chicago, I bought a house right around that time on Malibu Road in Malibu, and then he came out and bought a house. He saw that house. He bought a house like five doors down. And so we were living five doors apart. And, you know, for the next few summers, you know, like he was training. I mean, you guys, I'm sure you discussed his training regimen. But for anybody who didn't listen to that podcast, I mean, you know, he, he's been a freak before guys were freaks. Like, you know, he was training in the summers when other guys were like going, you know, going to Hawaii and drinking pina coladas. He was like doing four hours a day in the, in the gym. And not to say he didn't also do his partying. But he would do four. He'd like train for four hours and then go on a two-hour mountain bike ride. So I would do maybe half of the four hours in the gym with him, and then go to go to the coffee shop and wait to ride back to Malibu, and then he'd go out. You know, so I mean, he, he was really very focused. But he also there was a bunch of other guys there: Don Wildman and uh, John McEnroe. Uh, Shelly and I lived in the Malibu Road ghetto, which is so funny because they're all like seven-figure <laughs> houses. But McEnroe yeah. was in the Malibu Colony which is like, you know, how, you know, you, you can't go through the gate with less than 12, 15 million in those days. And now I think those houses are 50 million. So it was, they called our end the ghetto, which is, I always thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, um, so it, it was him and uh, John McGinley was out there and, and John Cusack. And I think Tony Danza might've been one of the ringleaders of putting it together and making hats and everything. So we all used to go, you know, on a Saturday night, we'd go to Taverna Tony's, this Greek restaurant, you know, where you got to pay, uh, you know, 40 bucks for pasticcio, you know, in Malibu. And no, it was a great place, but we'd all go there and have a big table and have, have fun. And, and uh, it just became this thing. And then one night these hats show up with the, with the shamrock on it, the Malibu mob. And I thought Shelly was going to object that there was no Greek flag on it because yeah. uh, <laughs> Laird Hamilton, the surfer, he's got half Greek, I guess. So I thought that'd be a Greek, you know, but they loved it. They loved those hats and everything. And so that just became a funny bit for a while. And then, you know, people would try to come up to Taverna Tony's and have dinner with the mob. And it, it was just a stupid thing, like, you know, kind of a rat pack kind of thing. You got you have any good like, you know, it's like playing hockey. We have like teammates that we stay like stay in touch with good friends. You have any friends that you keep in touch with, like that are actors and stuff? Well, one of my favorite guys is uh, I hate to say it because he's Canadian, but uh, it, Kiefer Sutherland is uh, he's one of my favorites. Um, just a good dude. Uh, you know, and it's no coincidence. He's a hockey player. Um, so he and I have had a lot of great experiences. We did 24 together real quick. And then I did another show he did called touch, but I always, we met on the set of young guns. He was doing young guns and I was trying to learn how to ride a horse for lonesome dove. And there weren't enough horses in New York city. So I flew down to Arizona where they were filming and, uh, you know, and I had done a couple of movies with Charlie Sheen. So I was basically stealing the use of their horses of their set. And one of the guys came over and starts yelling at me. And I hadn't really, I met Kiefer briefly before that. And Kiefer came over and just friggin' stood up for me. And he was sort of like, he didn't like bully the guy because, you know, he was one of the stars in the movie, but he didn't bully the guy. But he basically was like, hey, that's that's my guy. Step back. And it was just, it was unusual in Hollywood because, you know, you don't really get that much. So anyway, that's whatever, 35 years ago. And so we, we've stayed friends. 
I won't see him for three or four years, and it'll be just like you know, you know, back back at it. DV, um, I'm curious, and you know, we saw what happened in that um, the movie uh, recently with uh, Alec Baldwin, right? Um, I, I the curiosity for me, and I'm sure a lot of people, but how the fuck does that happen? That's Holy insanity. Shit. Nox, you, you, I got, I got to tell you, man, you're fucking good at this. I mean, you, <laughs> right. no, you keep hitting me with, you, keep hitting me well, with, you really are good at this. Holy, I'm not, I'm not going to say it like I didn't expect you to be. I was going to enjoy talking to you no matter what, but fuck, you're on it. Anyway, we can edit it, DB. Don't worry, don't, don't be shy. <laughs> yeah, it's no. a great question, and uh, you know, I, you know, to be candid, it, it, it never should have happened, and and there's a lot of things wrong with, um, with with the way the whole thing went down, and and I just want to say. I'm embarrassed as an actor that Alec Baldwin has not taken responsibility because, you know, anybody, you don't have to be a member of the NRA to know that the first rule of gun safety is you never point a gun at anyone. I mean, and, and especially like, you know, when you're in a situation where, you know, there's blanks on the set, you know that, you know, because a blank, uh, every actor worth his salt knows Brandon Lee was killed by a blank. Mm-hmm. John Eric Hexham was killed by a blank, you know, within like six or seven feet, a blank can kill you. So, whether it's blanks or real bullets, the fact that there was a real bullet on the set, that person should go to jail. I mean, no doubt about it. But Alec Baldwin is the final quality control. And, uh, you know, he's fired guns for 40 years, just like I have on sets. And you are the final le- level of quality control. In other words, I've never had – I think that – and again, if I'm saying the wrong facts, forgive me. But the way I understand the facts, a second AD, a second assistant director handed him the gun and said, cold gun. Now, I've never heard the term cold gun in 40 years. It's not a term of art. Nobody, it's either we're going hot or, you know, one round, you know, we're firing one round, quarter loads of the blanks. A quarter load is a smaller sound. A half load is a bigger sound. Full load, obviously, four times as big as a quarter load, obviously. So anyway, there's a whole procedure. And the armorer is the only person who handles weapons if, unless the weapons are, are, have been deactivated which they sometimes they do now. They deactivate the weapon and then they just visual effects, put in the flash or whatever. I prefer using the blanks because I feel like it gives you something to react to. And it also creates a little bit of the heightened sense of awareness that would really be happening in a situation where a gun comes out. So I think it's probably going to go away thanks to this incident. But I will say that Alec Baldwin saying the actor has no responsibility in this chain of, of events is ludicrous. And anybody would anybody who's ever done this kind of work would know that that's, you know, the actor, you check it. I get handed a gun and I check it. Usually what happens is the first assistant director comes over, the armorer comes over, and they and the, they, the guy has a flashlight in his teeth. He opens the weapon. He shows you what's happening. And you have a chance then as an actor to say, wait a second, I'm not comfortable. Can we reload it? Let's strip it. Let's, you know, I'm not, are we 100% sure? And that armorer stakes his reputation on the safety of it. And if I were to recheck him and find something wrong, he'd be fired the next day. So what compounds all this in the case of this movie in, in New Mexico is that Alec Baldwin's a big movie star, and he's the producer of the show. So he is the final authority on everything. If he says, I don't like that guy with the yellow hat, that guy in the yellow hat is in the airport in 20 minutes. So the idea that he's blaming other people for this happening, it, it shows real character weakness in my view. Yeah, we, we have a producer like that, Barry. Producer Barry, he's yeah. like... He's a, he can be a prick, right? Yeah, he should Tim? be in the airport in 20 minutes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that's yeah. good. Hey, uh, you know, going back real quick, like, is there any movies? You know, just a quick question of like any movies you passed that you kind of regret passing? 
Well, I mean, there's a few. Obviously, uh, sometimes, you know, they, they, they have a list of guys, and sometimes they offer it to multiple guys at the same time. They're a bunch of sneaky pricks, so you, you never know. It's not like a... It's not like they, like a prom date where they ask you and wait until you say no to get to the next guy. Um, so, uh, but one of the ones that I really regret every Christmas is Home Alone. They asked me to do oh. that part opposite Joe Pesci. I just, you know, that's one of those things you can't foresee because Macaulay Culkin. I mean, that's kind of a stupid script, but when Macaulay Culkin <laughs> makes the whole thing work, it's like so. Every Christmas, I got to sit through that now, and the checks I missed on that one. Oh my god! I can only imagine what's yeah. going on in your head when that's on. Totally, that's yeah. awesome. Yes. Yeah, but then right. there's other. There's other situations like I was training to do eight men out and I was learning to hit left-handed and uh, the studio was Orion. Orion was also making a movie called Bull Durham and they sort of were looking around for believable baseball players. They already had Kevin Costner. And so they offered me the part that Tim Robbins played. Um, But I didn't want to, I was into doing Shoeless Joe Jackson. I was into learning how to hit and I didn't do it. And of course, Bull Durham's a much bigger hit than eight men out. But I think in a way it worked out better for them because Tim Robbins is more different than Kevin Costner than I am. And at that time, it would have been like a big brother, little brother thing, whereas Tim Robbins is kind of like the awkward, goofy guy. And in their movie, the awkward, goofy guy getting the girl was funnier than the younger guy getting the girl. You know what I mean? I think it worked out better for them. So uh, I think I'd, I'm glad I made the decision I made. And, and it worked, you know, like sometimes it works out for them too. You know, Ronald Reagan was the first choice for Casablanca. And thank God he passed on and we got Bogart. So (laughs) sometimes it works out for the producers, too. Yeah. Um, You you know, I wanted to ask, and it's funny, like, and Tim, you know this, like, I remember playing hockey back in our day, and it's worse today, obviously, with social media and everything. But I remember guys would always say, oh, I don't read the paper. I don't read the fucking paper. How about the critics? Like, you do a movie, you're proud of what you did, you're proud of your work, and then you got that fucking critic that you just want to choke him how, how is it dealing with that um you know during your career well when i was in college the first time i ever saw a, a review like in a real newspaper uh the only mention of me was the very last line of the review it was a rave review they loved the play they thought it was great i had a tiny role and the last the last line of the review was and if the role of the reverend can't be better cast it should be eliminated and I was like, whoa. That, and that's like after they just said all the other 11 people were like perfect. And that's the last <laughs> thing they got. And I was like, and I was like, I went into depression for like three days. And I just, I, I didn't know what to do with that. I was like, I, wow, he went out of his way to like say not only I wasn't good, but that I was friggin' horrible and that I was a detriment <laughs> to the whole thing. It was like, you know, you're 22 years old. It's like, it was devastating. So, I basically that that review cured me because I sort of decided after three days, I thought about chucking it in and becoming a chef and just going to law school. I, I was like, that was a turning point moment for me. And I decided, you know what? I am never going to let a critic affect me again. That was my decision going forward. I would have been done. I'm 39 and I still get like, uh, like, yeah, I mean, but no, but like at least in hockey, like a game, you could have a bad game, but like there could be one in two days that you they forget. Like this is a movie that's it's forever. And now you're, you know, you got to deal with that. I think it's it's amazing to go, to go through that and, you know, to kind of do like you said, have that thick skin and and not like. I'm chasing you. the sun here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the sun's coming I, in. It's funny. I had that happen to me too. Like my, was like I was 20, 21, and I went after a guy uh, from the Washington Capitals who uh, ran Lafleur, and anyway, big brawl. Next day in the newspaper, 
The headline was, the Canadians don't need a guy like Chris Nyland. And they're just coming off of four Stanley Cups, you know, fucking Hall of Famers out the yin-yang. And it just crushed me. So when you said you went in that depression for like three days, I was the same. I'm like, fuck, they're going to trade me. They're going to get rid of me. I'm going to get sent down. And that was the furthest from the truth. Like, you know, and, and the guy who wrote it, Hall of Fame writer, um, Red Fisher, and we became friends down the road. And it, it's just funny how those things affect you when you're a young kid. And as you get older, uh, not so much. But, yeah, I guess the Sheens, Charlie Sheen and the family of Sheens, um, you've worked with all of them. Uh, yeah. How, how did that come about? And and is Charlie as crazy as everybody thinks he is? Hey, can I can I just ask you something? You just said really. I just want to. I'm going to come back to the Sheen thing, but what cool. you just said. So that locker room you're in in Montreal, you, you're probably one of the only Americans at that point, right? I mean, eighty. What is that? Eighty. Yeah, Langway, me and Langway. You and Langway, right? So did any of your French Canadian teammates come over and say, "Hey, don't worry about it. Don't." Did anybody come over in that room and say? <laughs> Not at all. Uh, that's what I was. That's what I was figuring. Next right, question. Yeah. Not at all. And <laughs> all. and that was fine. I, I, I again, it's funny when I look back, and I know every one of them grew to appreciate me uh, as the years went on. But uh, it's funny you mentioned that. Well, so anyway, uh, I just thought that was interesting because I know, you know, just in terms of, I was just relating my experience to yours because you know, you what an incredible culture shift for you going from Southie into like this foreign land where they speak a foreign language and you're playing a different style of hockey than they're playing. And I mean, everything is against you. And so I just, I have a lot of admiration for what you carved out. Having gone as like, my dad was a school teacher. I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. I go out to Hollywood and uh, you know, now I'm drinking with a guy like Charlie Sheen. And it's like, he grew up in Malibu. He grew up around Marlon Brando. And so, you know, they have, all these other guys have experience with these people. You know, they, they would have met Steven Spielberg at a barbecue. You know, for me, I've only seen these people I'm meeting now on TV and, and I have no frame of reference and I don't understand immediately. I've learned it now how duplicitous and how um, dishonest and how self self-interested just about everybody I encountered was. So that took, I made some mistakes early on where I was, you know, candid with people where I would like, tell them the truth about what I thought about something when it's, it's supposed to be a little bit more like not to beat on the French too much, although they deserve it. But like back in the like 1700s, you know, like French guys with wigs and the costumes and everything. And they're all like, Oh yes. And, and, but they're really lying to you and trying to stab you in the back. That's kind of like what my perception of Hollywood was, but I didn't really understand how to navigate that whole, you know, the new manners and the new behavior. So I had a fast learning curve, but during the time with Charlie, um, we did, I did this first movie with Francis Coppola, and because of that, as I mentioned before, Hollywood Studios just started offering me parts, and one of the parts I got offered was No Man's Land, and it was a good story, but this is another way where I'm not savvy. Um, so I said, I said, I don't want to do that. I had four scripts in front of me, and I, didn't, I couldn't believe they were offering me four different movies. So I was trying to eliminate them to try and figure out which one to end up doing. So I got rid of this one No Man's Land. I said, well, if you guys rewrite that, I'll do it. And I figured that would make them say, well, you know, go fuck yourself. You, who are you? You're not going to rewrite it because of you. Instead, they call back and say, we'll rewrite it. Who do you want to write it? And I was like, I don't know any writers. So I, I had gone to the movies the night before and I saw this movie Birdie. And I said, well, if you get the guys who wrote Birdie, I'll do it. 
So they got the guys that wrote Birdie. So all of a sudden I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm doing it. My agent was like, congratulations, you're doing it. So what I didn't realize at the time, and nobody knew at the time, the original writer of that script was Dick Wolf. He was like nobody. He was a screenwriter. He sucked at screenwriting, but he became the most powerful guy in television. Uh, Chicago Fire and uh, Law and Order. So I'm the only actor that was living in New York that was never on Law and Order because this guy obviously held a grudge. But, but anyway, so we go in. Um, so I get hired first, and Charlie Sheen made Platoon right around the time I was doing the Coppola movie Gardens of Stone. And he gets um, brought in by Orion because very smartly, Mike Medavoy, the guy who ran Orion, was like, Platoon is going to be huge when nobody thought that. And Charlie Sheen's going to be a big star. So my agent came to me and said, I think I made 15 grand on the Coppola movie. And now I'm making $60,000 on this no man's land. 6-0. And I'm like, that's more money than my dad ever made his whole life. I'm making it in four months. So I'm training, uh, like learning how to surf. I'm working in a Porsche garage. I'm doing all this stuff. And the studio comes in and says, Charlie Sheen's coming in. We want you to meet him to see if you guys have any chemistry. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. We go to dinner. Great guy. We have a thousand laughs. He's one of the funniest guys. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So my agent calls me up. She says, well, there's a little problem. In your contract, you have first billing. And Orion really wants Charlie Sheen to have first billing. And I was like, what do you mean? The way they put my name in the beginning of the movie? And she said, yeah. So, and I said, oh, I don't care. Charlie can have it. He seems like a good guy. If he wants it, he can have it. So she was like, no, 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 wait a second. You don't just give it away. We got to get you something. And I was like, well, all right, well, I'm out here in California. Maybe, could you get me a rental car? <laughs> I was like, that's what I'm asking. She goes, a rental car? <clears throat> I said, yeah. So she said, just hang on. I'll call you back in an hour. So I was making $60,000. So she calls me back in one hour. She goes, all right, we, they changed it. You got second billing. You're getting $125,000. We got you a really nice convertible rental car, and we're putting you in a better hotel. And I was like, holy crap, what would they give me if I take third billing? So, uh, you know, it was like, that was how stupid I was about everything. I, you know, I didn't even know. Anyway, so Charlie and I were hanging out. We became good friends, and, and he Platoon comes out, and he was less profiled than me probably, and then Platoon comes out right we're in the middle of filming, and he goes from being Martin Sheen's kid to being on the cover of Time magazine. So I saw that whole moment of, like, flip the switch, becoming a mega star. Uh, Charlie, you know, he really, his world just flipped upside down. And and uh, and then a year later, or a year and a half later, we did Eight Men Out. And uh, I'll always I'll always love Charlie because we were having a beer in McSorley's Ale House in New York City. He was filming Wall Street during the time when I was learning to hit left-handed for Eight Men Out. And so those movies, I did them two in a row, No Man's Land, Eight Men Out. He did Wall Street in the middle. I went to the set. And then we go have a beer, and John Sales had asked me to recruit some other Hollywood guys to be in Eight Men Out. So in the bar, I said to Charlie, hey, let's do this movie together. We'll be in the World Series. I knew he was a baseball fan. He had played in high school. And I said, I'll be the left fielder. You'll be the center fielder. It'll be awesome. And he was like, I love it, Dave. Let's do it. He never read the script. He didn't realize that he was Joe Blow and I was Shoeless Joe Jackson. <laughs> so he gets to Indiana in the hotel. He had never read the script. He's in the bar. He's got a cigarette with his baseball hat and he's having a beer. And I walk in and he goes, he goes, Deeb, Deeb, I'm on page 40. Where's my part? I'm not in the movie. What's happening? And I was like, it's not a big part, but it's a good part. And uh, blow to the ego. He stuck right? it out to his credit. And, uh, hey, and he, he came out in a major league. Major league's yeah. a great movie. Yeah. And so he went off and did another baseball movie. But, but yeah. anyway, so Charlie, Charlie's a great guy. I mean, I, I love Charlie. I just, I haven't seen him much since the uh, meltdowns. But, uh, you know, I went on to Two and a Half Men after he had left. And I, it, it was only one person he needed to get along with, which was Chuck Lorre, the boss. And and they couldn't get along. Charlie couldn't oh, get he along. He didn't like him, huh? Yeah. He and, just... but, 
But every person on that crew, there's probably 150 people on that crew. Every person said Charlie was a prince to them. And it's just, it's, I think it's one of those things about addiction maybe where he just, it was like the only, it was some, whatever his demon was, he had to burn down the house and burning down the house was by not getting along with Chuck. We're in conversation <clears throat> with the American actor, uh, D.B. Sweeney, a friend of both uh, Tim and I, and our good friend, Chris Chelios. Um, I have a question here from Jamie, my girlfriend. She is big into the UFO thing, and she yes. wants to know about Fire in the Sky. Um, obviously, a true story about alien abduction. Do you do you buy into any of that? Or One of my favorites, DB, of yours. Oh, I thanks. love Fire in the Sky. My wife's favorite, too. Yeah. My wife well, loves that movie more than any of the other ones I did. Um, I, I like the movie a lot, and I love the story. Um, it was an interesting situation because... I, I did the movie because this is how stu- uh, I, I should tell some stories where I'm not the idiot. But, uh, <laughs> but once again, I'll be the idiot in this one. Um, at that time, my favorite comic book growing up, like everybody else is probably Spider-Man. Right. And at that time in 1992 or 1993, whenever that was, the rights to Spider-Man were controlled by James Cameron, you know, Titanic, mm-hmm. Terminator, one of the great directors. He controlled the rights. He did all his visual effects at Industrial Light and Magic. So when they sent me the script for Fire in the Sky, they said, we're going to do the effects of Industrial Light and Magic. And I knew that in the script, the guy had to be weightless, like gravity. And I thought, well, that's kind of like Spider-Man. Like, so I'll be able to audition in real time for James Cameron to get Spider-Man. So like by showing him how good I am on these wires, you know, where they suspend you from the ceiling, or whatever, as if that's how they're going to hire the guy to play Spider-Man because he's good on the wires. Like, like I think I'm auditioning for the circus. So, but anyway, so that was why I did the movie, but then I, I really fell in love with the story and, and uh, Paramount wanted me to meet with uh, Travis Walton or the guy that it was based on. And I was like, I really don't want to do that because I'm worried. What if I don't believe him? It's going to make my job harder because I had done this movie, Memphis Bell, where I played Memphis Bell, even though they changed the names of all the guys on the Memphis Bell, this one guy, Chuck Layton, the navigator who I played, they changed his name, but they turned him into, a, he's a coward in the movie. That's why I wanted to do it, because I thought he was the most interesting character who, who overcomes his cowardice and does the right thing. But um, the family of Chuck Layton was freaking out because they knew that over that now the true history would be obscured by this fictional movie where their family member was now perceived to be a coward. And all the guys on the Memphis Bell, we met them, were over there filming in England. They were all like, he was the opposite of a, of a coward. He was the bravest guy on our ship. He got us out of so many shit shows. Uh, he was the guy. <clears throat> but he was such a good guy that he wasn't going to ruin the experience for all his teammates to be in a, a part of a movie. But his kids and other people, so it became a whole thing that I got drawn into the middle of. And I was like, hey, wait a second. I just, there was nothing I could do. I wasn't the producer. I was, I'm just trying to play a part. So I don't want to go through that again with Travis Walton. So I asked them not to, I didn't want to meet him. I wanted to just believe it was true and not have any reason not to. So I made the movie assuming it was true. I finally met Travis and uh, he's a nice guy. And, and I, I believe that something happened to him because he's a little different. And, uh, but he can't remember at that time. He said he couldn't remember what happened on the spaceship. Um, and so all the stuff on the spaceship in the movie, which I think is the best part of the movie, was all uh, made up by screenwriters and special effects and stuff. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, the thing that's so compelling about that story is that in the movie, there's five witnesses. In the real story that Travis told, um, there were six witnesses. And it's all guys that they're not like all fraternity buddies or something. They're all sort of just co-workers. And all six of those dudes swear that it happened. 
So it's kind of hard to, you know, to get yeah. six witnesses. Yeah, that's crazy. Like when you think of it, you know, when when you hear the story, you're thinking the guy was on LSD or something. But then you get those six witnesses. It's like, yeah, just the cops, the cops in Arizona, so compelling. what they said, they said it was LSD. That was their version of it. <laughs> yeah. But, Really? And it could, you know, it could be, you know, but it's like it definitely didn't work out where Travis Walt, where it made his life any better. Well, I don't well, regardless, think. he was abducted, yeah. right? Like that's yeah. Yeah. LSD, no LSD. <laughs> yeah, but totally. I saw that movie in the theaters. No joke. And it was, oh, I, wow. man, it was awesome. It was awesome. I was just with Robert Patrick, you know, the guy, the Liquid Terminator guy, awesome dude, one of my favorite actors, also along with Kiefer Sutherland. I, I, if I had to make a list of five, he'd be on it for sure, three even. Um, uh, he just bought a Harley Davidson dealership in Santa Clara, Clarita, California. Like, talk about like you know, following your passions. But anyway, <clears throat> he and I have talked many times over the years. Where, uh, you know, that movie came out, it was number one in the box office. But there was a blizzard all over the northeast of the U.S. So the movie did like six million dollars opening weekend. If there had not been a blizzard, Robert always says to me, he and I would have both been bigger stars. Just one freaking <laughs> snowstorm. Because that's the way it was in those days. If that movie had done a bigger first weekend, they would have spent more money. And then all of a sudden it goes off and does gazillion dollars. And then it changes your standing. So we were just joking about that about two months ago. So Christmas, Home Alone, and snowstorms really piss you <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> So, I, you know, there's one thing I did I, I want to make sure we talk about because I know you're very passionate about and uh, Nux and I were talking before, maybe you can explain them, is Two Dumb Mix. And I think it's awesome. You you wrote it, right? Yeah. Um, that came kind of came from, uh, well, two things in a way. Like Sean Austin was in that movie I mentioned, Memphis Bell. And I'd, I'd bump in him every five or six years. And, you know, he was uh, Sam Wise in Lord of the Rings. He was Rudy. He's just a phenomenal actor. He goes back to Goonies. I mean, he's been in the business for almost 50 years. And he just one of my favorite people I've ever worked with. In Memphis Bell, he was so enthusiastic. He was just such a great, great person to be around. And so I bump into him every five or six years, and I always hoped I'd work with him again. And it never came to pass. So I wrote this thing, uh, Too Dumb Mix, which was coming out of a different um, part of my uh, thought process, which is, you know, because of political correctness and wokeness and everything, comedy has gotten really, really hard. I mean, there's, you're not allowed to make fun of anything without getting yeah. canceled. Or, so I thought, well, the only thing you make fun of is white guys. And the only thing that doesn't piss everybody off is slapstick. So I thought, you know, like, like, uh, you know, Abbott and Costello, the Marx brothers, that stuff is actually kind of timeless because the victim of the joke is a white guy. And who cares if you get hit with a pie in the face? You know, it's not, it's not political. It's not, you know, social. It's so, that was where I started writing Two Dumb Mix. And uh, and I had excited to clear it. My sister lives in Ireland. I had to clear it with all the Irish because, you know, they don't they don't really call mix. It's not really a big slur <laughs> no. in Ireland. You know, they if they call them a patty, that's yeah. that's you know, that's worse. But in America, Mick is, you know, it's not as bad as the things some people call gay people or some people call black people. That's the slow slurs that we that we don't use. You know, it, it's not as bad as that, but for some people in America it is. Anyway, so I thought I'm gonna lean right into it. And make fun of the, you know, the Irish white idiot drunks. So, um, so I wrote this thing, and then I called Sean. I said, "Do you want to do this?" And also trying to figure out how to how to get out there with, you know, now with the Instagram and all these other places where people look at short content. So I wrote this thing, and I and Sean agreed to do it, and it turned out great. And uh, I didn't really know if it was funny or not, so I submitted it to some film festivals, mostly so that I could go watch it with an audience, and then re-edit it and see where the jokes are, and just try to learn and educate myself. And then COVID hit. And so most of these film festivals became virtual. 
And the movie won 85 awards at film festivals. I didn't even submit it to a lot of these film festivals. It just They kept sharing it with you know as a short film to the next one and the next one. So obviously people really responded to it. It won awards in, in five different countries. And, you know, like 85 is a lot. I mean, I know some <laughs> film festivals, they just give you awards because, you know, they've heard of you. But even if there's some of those mixed in there, I'm really proud of it. So Sean and I are going to do two more episodes of it, like, you know, sequels kind of, and see where it goes. And, you know, like I'm, I'm at a point in my career where it's sort of like I know unless I call somebody up and say, hey, you want to do something with me, it's probably not going to just happen. So I'm just trying to, you know, nudge things along and be around the people I want to be around. And the purpose of that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like obviously there's a, you know, you're trying to eventually sell that, right? Someone buy it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really know the pathway. Like, I, you know, I, you could put it on YouTube and try to get advertising. So, um, but I think that Sean and I could be in a TV show together and, and, or we could make movies. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember the Bob Hope, Bing Crosby movies back in the day, like On the Road to Morocco. I just thought Sean and I and these two characters, we could be on the road. Like, like I mean, we could do all kinds of things. Like, they're two drunken Irish guys. Every episode starts, they're in jail, they get bailed out, and now they're trying to scam something. And so, I think that you could take those two guys and put them anywhere. They could be like janitors at the Oscars trying to sneak in and steal an Oscar. You know, like, like it, it, there's no limit to what they could do. You know, like they're, they're busboys at a wedding. You know, like, you know, they've, they gotta, they're trying to sneak into the orchestra because they heard there's a famous violin they could steal. You know, like, I, I think that it could go on and on, and, and they're not evil. And so I, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but I hope something's going to happen with it. Um, I, listen, I wish you all the best with that. I was asking <clears throat> Tim if that's, you know, something that could be a TV show one day. And, and is that why you did it? But, um, it, thinking about, um, just thinking about, uh, athletes and I know, and athletes in Hollywood, you guys play, you're playing some pickup hockey. Um, uh, do you play when you, did you play when you're out in California, play any pickup hockey and, if you did, um, and who who are some of the best athletes, I guess, in Hollywood, if you could? Um, let's see. Uh, well, yeah, we had this Hollywood All-Star team, which was – that was pretty fun. That's where I think I first – well, that's where I first played hockey with Kiefer. Um, and Kiefer's a pretty good player. Uh, he grew up in Montreal um, and also Toronto. Uh, I, th- I think – actually, I think he was – I can't remember where he was born in Montreal. But anyway, a lot of time in Toronto. But he played hockey. Keanu Reeves – is a goalie, which kind of makes sense since all goalies are idiots. Um, so, you know, I mean, he's, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, but he's a really good guy. He and I made a movie together. I, I have nothing but respect for that guy. Also in terms of what he's trained himself, like these John Wick movies, like he is the weapons guy in Hollywood. Like he is so good with the speed reloads and, and none of that stuff is by accident. Like he's trained his ass off. And I really respect that he's figured out, I'm better with guns than I am with dialogue. So let's just make me, you know, get a good haircut <laughs> and be really slick. I, I think that's how you do it. You, you know, you figure out, you know, Chris, you know, you weren't going to be a 50 goal scorer in the NHL. So you, you, you adapt, you figure it out. Right. I mean, so I respect Keanu Reeves a lot. He was interesting. Michael J. Fox was there. Um, really good guy. Um, he was there a lot. Um, let's, I'm trying to think of who the best players were. Uh, uh, Cameron Bancroft is a guy. He's not as well known. He's from, all these guys are from Canada, obviously. Yeah. Um, but Bancroft is it was a really good player. Lachlan Monroe was a good player. 
Cuba Gooding Jr. He's a good hockey player. Well, right? Cuba and I actually, Cuba and I started at the same time. He hadn't skated at all, and Cuba has the all-time callout. So we, so we both started like like in 1991 or something, 92 at the same time. He's a tremendous athlete. I mean, he back then like he was so good at break dancing, like he could flip around and do splits and all that. And he's you know he's just one of those guys. He's got that bounce in his step where you know he's an athlete. And so he got on the ice, and and I was on the ice, and I and and we, neither of us had any hands, and we still don't. I mean, he might be better by now, but I had no hands. But all I could Join really do club. was, yeah. <laughs> but all I could do was bother other people that had hands. Like that was the only thing that, the only role that I had. And when the game, the tempos went up a little bit, and we were trying to win. Usually it was if you're playing with NHL or former NHL guys, they're just trying to pass it to the idiots so the idiots can score. <laughs> and, and it stays like that. But then the last five or six minutes of the game, it turns into a game. And that's what was the fun part for me because, you know, I could skate well enough that I could chase guys around and interfere with their play. And so that was all I could do. But then Cuba comes along. He's in the same boat as me. And we realize, oh, you know what could be fun? We'll go on different teams and we'll make it that we're allowed to hit each other. Like, so we were going to, like, so it was open season. We actually had a, an armistice where it was like in these celebrity games, you're allowed to, you, if you see me with the puck and you can make a clean hit, go just drill me, take me into tomorrow and I'm going to try and get you. And so it became this game within the game. And so we're playing at Madison Square Garden, Christopher Reeve, God rest his soul. They had this foundation. I don't know if that started after you were there. Was that already going then? Yeah, it was there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so we're playing in Madison Square Garden, the Christopher Reeve game. There's a lot of big names there. Um, Guy Lafleur is in the game. Yeah. Um, a bunch of, you know, Gresh is playing. All these. No, actually, I don't think Gresh is playing in that one. But anyway, a lot of big names, some Hollywood names. And Cuba is getting interviewed on the bench by, I think, John Davidson. And it's on the scoreboard. And I'm on the ice. And I had just jumped on. And Cuba's in the middle of the interview. And he's, he, he tells John Davidson or, or, or Sam Rosen, whoever it was who was interviewing him, and he goes, oh, hang on, DB's out there. I got to go get him. <laughs> and so he jumps over the boards and he skates like, I have the puck in the corner, I have no idea, 16,000 people. And he flies across the ice and fucking pancakes me in the corner, like the greatest hit of all time. It's a friggin' yard sale. My shit is everywhere. I, I, I had nothing but respect for it. I thought it was the greatest thing. It was like Babe Ruth calling his shot. And uh, so I, I hope there's video of that somewhere because it was just the greatest thing. But anyway, so I, I love Cuba. I mean, anybody that's hung out with Cuba, he's, he's one of the great guys. And, and so, uh, you know, he, he made it a lot of fun going to the rink in L.A. because he would make a lot of those tight-ass L.A. guys relax a little. All the Canadian guys were fine, but the L.A. Hollywood mm -hmm. producer types that were on the ice – Cuba would like call him out and make him yeah, relax. Yeah, just the good, the good locker room guy, right? Yeah, Ducks? just it makes everything. Yeah, that's awesome. DB, awesome. you've been really generous with your time. I, I have a, just a couple more things I want to ask. Though why I got you? Yeah, yeah, this just, is great. Been, fun. We got one more. This just one more hour. Awesome. We got one this, more hour. <laughs> this has been <laughs> awesome. No, it really has. Again, catching up with you after all these years has been yeah, it's incredible. Really great. Uh, I, I was shocked that you're a Red Sox fan. And I remember as a kid, I listened to that album, The Impossible Dream, Ken Coleman, uh, Yaskrimski dives and makes a tremendous catch. I'll never forget that as long as I live. So, so you being that Red Sox fan, what was it like for you throwing out the first pitch at a White Sox game? Well, you know, I, the White Sox people have been really good to me. You know, I played Shoeless Joe Jackson. He's their greatest ever player. Um, they, uh, Kenny Williams was a general manager recently. Now he's a president. I became friends with him like 30 years ago. He was a great athlete. Um, I'm a great outfielder for the White Sox and I, he played for the, uh, I can't remember the other teams he played for just offhand, but 
he had a great career and he's been a great executive for me. He was very good to me. And so he invited me to come down and, and I was like, I thought that very thing. I was like, so many people are going to be like, what a friggin' turncoat this guy is. And, but I just thought, <laughs> you know, it's a great opportunity. And then um, somebody in the bar said, well, the only way you can make it uh, right is if you go out with no shoes on. So I was like, oh. all right. And, and I'm just like thinking, I uh, shoeless Joe. I, so I fell for it. So I, 40,000, it's a Cubs White Sox game on the South side. There's 40,000 people there. And I've been in front of a lot of people, but I've never been in front of 40,000 people. And and the throwing out the first pitch, I'm sure you guys have done it, but it's like, it's a real pressure because you got like half the crowd rooting for you and half the crowd rooting for you to fuck up. And so, and you can feel that energy. And it's, I don't know if people are betting on it or whatever. So anyway, so before I did it, um, AJ Przinsky said to me, um, don't bounce it. And I was like, oh, he said, if you bounce it, they'll boo you. doesn't matter what else you do. And I, was, I had all these things going through my mind. Like, I can't really throw a good knuckleball, but I can throw it a little bit. And I was like, I want to do something that nobody's ever done. I was like, maybe I'll throw a slider. Uh, I don't know what. I was going to try to just make something interesting. And I'm throwing it to Mark Burley. And thank goodness he's 6'5". So I just decided, they, the other guy, no, I got all these things in my ear that I'm, as I'm going out there. The other guy goes, it's on the radar gun. They're going to put it on the scoreboard, how fast you throw it. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. But I've already been talked into taking my shoes off. So now I try to bring, I, I just load it up and I try to throw it as hard as I can. And I threw it pretty good. You know, I don't know, it was, it was up in the upper 70s or 80 or whatever it was. It was pretty good. With no shoes on, it's pretty good. But it freaking sailed on me. And thank goodness Mark Burley's 6'5". He had to fucking <laughs> jump and go get it for me. And uh, so that could have been a disaster. So I'd like to do it again sometime properly. But I think it would be great. I don't think I've ever seen anybody who didn't play professional baseball get up there and throw the first pitch and drop a slider in for a strike. Like to me, some that guys, some yeah. guys, some some are so bad. It's, it's like crazy. you're like this guy never played sports before. Yeah, I mean the greatest. <laughs> like, the greatest. Well, he might have. It's just like I can only imagine. Yeah, like 50, 50 cent. If you ever Google fifty cent, yeah, 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 yeah. Looks yeah. like a badass. He threw it like, like at the mound. Yeah. He threw it at like the and, and like, mound. You gotta be kidding me. And okay, the, throw it at home plate. The greatest <laughs> of all time in on the moment was uh, George Bush uh, right after 9-11. Oh, that was that is actually. Well, he, awesome. He's got a bulletproof vest on, and he friggin' throws a strike under all those circumstances. I mean, I don't care what else anybody else says about him as a president. That's one of the greatest moments since the Gettysburg oh, yeah. Address. I mean, that How was How fast did you throw yours? How fast was yours? 70. Uh, I, it was oh, up you in say the 70s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some, somebody said okay, 80, I'm but gonna I didn't go, believe I'm gonna him. I think they were just kissing my ass. I'm going to look that up. Yeah, yeah. But I, I want to do it again, uh, you know, under the proper conditions. And the guys who cheat now, they go in the tunnel and they get loose and they throw. And, you know, they didn't used to let you do that. You used to have to come out there cold. And You're so, like, but I want to do it again. Up? You're cheating? I really want to do it at Fenway. I want to do it. Yeah. Oh, Mark, I got to awesome. tell you one story about Fenway. You like this story, <laughs> yeah. right? So, yeah. right, at, right around the time when I was just saying, you know, can I, instead of trying to get jobs in Hollywood, I just got my first movie. And or eight men out is coming out, and it's the first time I've ever had like backstage passes for anything. And I'm at Fenway Park seeing a Red Sox game, and we're gonna do a screening of eight men out and the whole thing. And they gave me this press pass, and I had this flunky from uh, uh, Orion Studios with me. And I was like, let's go see where we can go with this thing. I was like, I wanted to get inside the Green Monster, so I have this pass, and I got there two hours early. And I'm taking this person. I'm like, let's go here, let's go there. And there's all these like catacombs under Fenway Park. And I'm, I want to go in every room. I'm trying to see maybe I can find Ted Williams' bat, you know, something. I don't know. What I'm, I don't even know what I'm looking for. Right at that moment, I come around a corner. I bump into Spike Lee. 
Spike uh. Lee has the same pass, and he's got the same idiot with him, or the same thing. <laughs> he's doing the same thing. And so at that moment, like, I mean, Spike, I don't agree with a lot of things he does, but yeah. he's as passionate a sports fan as there is. And uh, we kind of bonded in that moment, and I, I went off and did two movies with him after that. It's funny you mention that because I, I went with Mark Hardy to a – Harpo. Uh, yeah, Harpo. Uh, at Knicks, uh, Celtics game, and we sat – Two seats down from Spike Lee, and that's when I had my broken arm. And I can't tell you how many times I just wanted to stand up and go like that and hit him right in the chops. He was he was chirping every guy on the Celtics. Like I I hate that when guys do that, especially in basketball. They chirp. The I, I, I'm like shut up and let them play. You know you're not in the game. I want I wanted to knock his teeth out yeah right. I, I i couldn't go i don't really watch a lot of nba anyway because the whole concept of a free throw it's like that'd be like a penalty shot with no goalie you know like I, I, what's the point of that <laughs> but these guys still can only make up some guys only make them half the time it's like you know but i i used to love the nba i used to love going to the knicks but i'm not as into it anymore um at, at all but uh it's funny we say that about hockey like sometimes um they, they give you the tickets on the glass and it's fun in a way but it's like I don't want to be on TV. I don't want to be part of the game. I don't want to. I want to watch <laughs> yeah. these dudes because I might screw up or do something. I want to just be myself. So I've always found um, like they've been great to me here in Chicago. Like the owner of the of the Blackhawks, um, the Wirtz family. They have these seats. It's like twenty rows up on the corner at the home goal that they attack at twice. And to me, that's the perfect place to watch a game from. You know, you're like you can see the whole ice, and you're on, you're in the end of the team that you're hoping scores twice. So, I mean, but the, the on the glass thing to me is like, that's where you take the hot chick if he's never been to a hockey game. You, know, <laughs> oh, yeah. you don't really see the game that well, unless you get lucky enough to get a tilt in front of, in your end, then it's awesome. But they don't have those anymore, Chris, as you know. You no, know, no more tilts. God, those were fun. I, you know what I wanted to ask you about? And like, I love World War II stuff. I love Patton, the movie. I love George C. Scott. But one guy that, and I remember one of his first big roles. I'm wondering what you think of him as an actor. Uh, my <laughs> Left Foot. Oh, wow. Daniel Day-Lewis. Like, one of my favorite all-time movies. And it was like, a, wasn't it? It was an in, independent film at the time, Yeah, right? Yeah, Jim Sheridan directed that, the Irish director. It's a great, great movie. And he's a phenomenal actor. I mean, he's, he's able to transform himself like nobody's business. Um, but he's got a different approach than me. Like, like I don't believe in all that this whole, this whole distortion of method acting, which is like, you have to call me by my name. I have to stay in the character. Like, I think he did a movie. I think when he did Last of the Mohicans, I think he built the house that he lived in and actually lived in it. And, you know, I mean, whatever it takes to get it done, but it's not my style. Um, but anyway, I heard a story of like, he played Abraham Lincoln yeah. um, and he was brilliant. It was a great movie and the whole thing. A friend of mine was on the movie, right? And so you're making a movie. There's cameras everywhere. There's people that are not dressed up like 1865. It's like you're not really Abraham Lincoln. You're the guy pretending to be Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> so, like, you know, you got to ease up at, at, some, at some point. So, anyway, so my buddy goes to take a – he goes in the bathroom, and, and you, everybody was instructed not to talk to him unless your character oh. talks to him. And so if you're the secretary of state, you can talk to the president. But if you're a soldier – you know, but you're in the same pisser. It's, it's retarded. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, so this guy is standing next to um, to Daniel Day-Lewis, and he's got his his phone, and he's looking at his messages or something while he's pissing, which we've all done. It's it's a risk. It may go in there, but, you know, he's not allowed to talk to the guy, so you got to do something. So anyway, he's, and uh, Daniel Day-Lewis leans over and he goes, what would that device be? 
like as if he's Abraham Lincoln <laughs> seeing an iPhone for the first time. And I'm like, it's just stop. You know, what, I, yeah. Stop. You know, yeah, just, right. I mean, it's hilarious. It's like, you know, so I, I was on a movie with Halle Berry and I'm play, I played her husband in this thing called Introducing Dorothy Dandridge. And she was doing that same thing. There's no prettier woman in Hollywood. She's stu- she's prettier in person. I'm playing her husband. And in the, sto- in the story, I bash her around. And it was a great part, but I was scared if I ever hit her. You know, what a damage, you know, I wouldn't want to damage that perfect face. And, uh, but anyway, um, she was saying, everybody's got to call me Dorothy. And I think Hallie is so cool. And I like the idea that I'm saying hi to Halle Berry. I mean, I don't want to say hi to Dorothy. Fuck Dorothy. You know, I want to talk, I want to, I'm from Long Island. I want to talk to Halle Berry, you know? So, so anyway, so every time you said Hallie, they had a coffee can taped to the camera and you're supposed to put five bucks in there if you call her Hallie. And, and I was like, all right, five, but here you go. Hallie, hey, Hallie, what do you think of this? Because we're trying to work out how to do the scene. And so my character dominates her in the story. So I thought, I'm going to show you method acting in real life, right? So at the third time, she goes, all right, DB, and points to the can. She goes, Jack, my name was Jack. She goes, Jack, points to the can. And I go, I'm DB. I take $100 out, I jam it in the can. I go, run me a tab, right? <laughs> <laughs> And it was like, it was the oh. ultimate power move because my character does dominate her, but I don't have to pretend to be some other name. You know, we're, there's cameras here. There's people here. We're not. It's called acting. You know, it's called yeah. acting, right? So anyway, the coffee can went away the next day. It's funny. And not to diminish um, the the occupation. It's, I, I always say to Jamie, it's funny. I, I, I'll be watching a movie or something and I'll hear someone's line and I'll repeat it to her. I said, fuck, that's easy. Acting's fucking. I could. I could fucking act. I said, right? She always laughed. She said, "You're fucking gone. You could never do this." And it's funny. I just. I said, "See, look, it's easy." But how? I guess how difficult is it to adjust to that? Like what? what Tim and I, we played. You played in front of sixteen thousand people in charity games. How difficult is it when you get there and it's not just the camera? You want to focus on that, I get it, but the uh, all the extras and the people around that everybody's watching. How did, how difficult is that to just to get focused and get into that zone you have to be in with all those people watching? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, for me, it really uh, my sports experience really helped me because you know I, I like baseball in high school. There was never any crowd. There'd be you know hundred people there, but sometimes playing high school basketball, there'd be you know several hundred people there and. And, you know, like I know I made fun of free throws just a minute ago, but I'll tell you, when you're shooting a free throw in a game when you're tired and there's a couple thousand people watching or 1,500 people, mm-hmm. you know, you, you better you better <laughs> collect yourself and get it going. And so, you know, you learn to control your breathing. You learn. So I, I knew all that stuff kind of from sports. And, and you know, at every level you go up, like when I, I remember in baseball, like the next season you show up in the spring and you're one year older and the, and the pitch is getting to you. The pitch is about a foot closer to you. You know, your reaction time is about a foot less than it was last year, a foot and a half. Or, and you either just – you either make the adjustment or you go home. And and I, I know the first time I was on a set and I saw all those people, I just felt my, my heart was just pounding. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know how – what am I going to do? Am I looking the right place? Am I doing the right thing? What if I say my line wrong? What if I'm awkward? What am I – and you basically just, you know, I'm, I'm sure as you guys came up the ranks, you know, in hockey, it's like, you know, you, you go from being a, a, a U14 to a U16. And it's like those kids are a little bigger, a little faster. And it's like you basically got to step up or go home. And, you know, I, I kind of I had to have it happen very quickly on sets because I had no training being in front of a camera. So but I just tried to control my breathing and uh, 
and just basically say, I'm not, I'm not, I got to get this done. I can't leave here with my tail between my legs. Hey, like I said, you've been um, um, awesome uh, today. So thank you so much for your time. It's been really, Tim and I are just embarking on this um, career together in podcasting and uh, to have you on and be so gracious with your time. It's been awesome. Uh, how's Ashley, by the way? Ashley's uh, great. Thank you very much. Tell thank you. Knuckles says hello. I will. I will. And, uh, you know, and I really think you guys are going to have a great future with this because, you know, you got a great chemistry together. You guys are have this all these commonalities and you're also so distinctly different. It's I think it's a great chemistry. We're just and, uh, starting to skate, just like you. Yeah. This is what we're doing. We're just starting to skate. DB, yeah. I know I appreciate it too, man. That's awesome that you came on. And I'm sure I'll see you on the golf course where, you know, doesn't matter what movie you were in or where I played hockey. Just bring the cash. That's so, right. That's, <laughs> Nux, you, you I got to get golf? out there. I got to get out there and play golf with you guys one day. Yeah, Shelly, the four of us. I'd love Shelly. <laughs> He'll he be the tough guy to get on the course. Yeah, he doesn't golf. Yeah, no, no, no. Summer is not easy. I yeah. play with him. I play with him back here. It, the only thing he would hit is a three iron. He would never <laughs> hit the driver. He hits the three iron. That's it. Funny. Yeah. I, I've done rounds with him where he's gone seven iron putter. You know, he gets one yeah. that's working and, you know, and he swings out of his shoes. He hits, it, he hits the ball good. Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah, he, he, he right. you know, he's a great athlete, so he can figure it out. But uh, yeah, I want to force him. That would be, I'd love it if we could get that going. Yeah. I'd love to. Hey, again, thanks for your time, DB. We've been awesome.